This is a special morning. I would like to ask all the people in the room who are in grades kindergarten through sixth grade to stand up. Would you do that now? You are not normally in this room with us worshiping. We are just so glad to have you here with us worshiping. And uh, while you're standing, I'm going to make a solemn promise to you. I promise that I will preach less than three hours this morning. Okay? Are we good? All right. Thanks. <laughs> uh, to mark this day, I would like to begin by having us look at a painting. It is the most viewed American painting because it hangs in the rotunda of our nation's capital. This is John Trumbull's The Declaration of Independence, the 4th of July, 1776, and most everything about the painting is wrong. First of all, there wasn't a signature on the Declaration of Independence until August the 2nd. And then it was months after that before the signers could get to Philadelphia, where they could sign the Declaration. Also, there were no war banners on the walls there in Independence Hall in Philadelphia. There were, there were, uh, they were figments of Trimble's imagination. There were no draperies on the windows. The chairs are in the wrong place. And on it goes. Except what is true, and this is Trimble's purpose, was that if you look at the painting, you can see clearly 47 faces of signers of the Declaration of Independence. Trumbull's purpose in the painting was to say that this decision was not that of a king or a czar. This decision is made by citizen Congress, an act of a free people. And every face is identifiable and thus accountable for what they are doing. It's an amazing piece of artistry once you understand that there's 47 faces that we know that are founding, that who are our founding fathers. I thought it would be great to honor those men and uh, by showing that painting. I also thought it would be great to continue the fireworks from last night and choose a text that really speaks to, uh, I think, the closest thing that Jesus made as a political statement. I thought we would look at a text in Mark chapter 12, where uh, Jesus comes into uh, Jerusalem for the last week of his earthly life with us. And he, uh, first of all, you might recall, walks in, there's the triumphal entry. The first thing Jesus does is goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple, not of foreigners, but of foreign business going on. People who were in the temple not to worship God, but to, to do their business, to make money and to, to, to uh, kind of uh, strip the temple of, of God and, and worship. So he cleanses all that money-making he uh, says, you might remember, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. And you have made it a den of thieves and robbers. Cleanses that, you know, obviously now has the attention of everyone walking in Jerusalem. 
And so the people are captured by him, some taken with him, some just curious. But his religious community, and in particular, a group of men called the Sanhedrin, 71 men, some Pharisees, some Herodians. These were the um, culture makers, the movers and shakers in the Jewish community, the leaders of the people. They wanted Jesus stopped. They wanted him done. And so what they do is they send uh, two groups, interestingly, from both sides of the aisle to try and trap Jesus into getting him, I think, to say something that would get him killed. And so the Herodians send a group of Pharisees. Now, I don't want to push this comparison too strongly and force our culture on there, but the Pharisees, we could they would be parallel to someone who maybe in our culture is a conservative. They certainly did not want to be governed by Rome. They were not fans of big government. <laughs> they, they wanted to be done with Rome and out from and under its rule. And then on the other side of the aisle, there's the Herodians who supported Roman rule. They were for big government. They thought we should cooperate with Rome. And, but in this particular instance, to get Jesus, they work across the aisle. They come and they want to trap him. In his words. So let's pick up the story by reading from Mark chapter 12. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to, to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Uh, let me just hear blah, 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 blah. Here's the question. And by the way, kids, to help me preach less than three hours, just let me give you my structure so you can track with me and keep me on track. First, we're going to talk about a question. Second, we're going to talk about Jesus' answer. And then third, we're going to talk about the irony of it all. The irony of Jesus, the king. So here's the question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? There is the question. We go on. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Here's Jesus' answer. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, would you say it with me? Because you've heard this before. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. And they were amazed at him. The question is a really smart question. And it's a well-designed question to trap Jesus. Some background. Josephus, the great Jewish historian who lived and was a contemporary of Jesus, he tells us that in 6 AD, this imperial tax was imposed to any and every non-Roman citizen in the empire. So in other words, if you were not a legal Roman citizen, you had to pay this, they called it a, a head tax, for the privilege of being a subject of Caesar's. And it was a denarius, which in the day was a day's wages. In our day, it's probably about a quarter. But they, uh, whoever was not a citizen of the empire had to pay this head tax. And when it was implemented in 6 AD, 
there was a leader from the Jews named Judas the Galilean who led a revolt. Now get this. Judas the Galilean in 6 AD came and he was about three things. First, he was about what he said was the kingdom of God. In other words, we should be led by God. We should be delivered from the oppression and injustice of Rome. So he came into town talking about the kingdom of God. The second thing Judas the Galilean did was cleanse the temple of all foreigners. It should be Jews only. Now you and I know from the Old Testament in our reading of it that the temple was never to be designed Jews only. It was to be Jews doing worship and inviting the nations of the world to join them. Judas got that very wrong. But he cleansed the temple of all foreigners. And the third thing Judas the Galilean did in 6 AD was to encourage people to not pay the head tax. Within weeks, Judas the Galilean was caught and executed. So now here we are, just over 25 years later, and a man comes into Jerusalem. And what's he doing? The first thing this man, we'll call him Jesus the Galilean, is doing, he's coming into town proclaiming that he is bringing the kingdom of God. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, the first words out of Jesus' mouth in a public sermon, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. Second thing Jesus does when he walks into town is cleanse the temple. Not of foreigners, but of foreign business. Now the people are asking Jesus, Jesus, are you as well going to say that we should revolt and not pay the head tax, the imperial tax? Now this is a dilemma, right? Think about it. If Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, what will happen to him? The same thing that happened to Judas the Galilean. He would be caught and executed, ministry over. I mean, he, he would be accused of treason and promoting treason, and Rome would put him down. If he says, yes, pay the tax, what would happen? I think what would happen is it would be revealed to the people that he is nothing more than a politician blowing smoke. Right? I mean, Jesus came and saying, look, I am the fulfillment of all that the prophets have been talking about. I'm that king. I'm the Messiah. And I come to do what? To give sight to the blind, to make the lame walk, to free the prisoners, to feed the hungry, to do real and powerful things in this world that will push back against poverty and hunger and suffering and injustice. But if Jesus comes and says, oh, just pay the tax, submit to Rome, he is saying, you know, just be a nice and patriotic citizen. He's just like everyone else. Maybe next legislative session we'll get some things done. So get the dilemma. It's a trap. If Jesus says, no, don't pay the tax, it's treason. And he loses his head. And if he says, yes, pay the tax, then he loses the people. Because he's no different than any other politician saying high and mighty things, but nothing will back it up. There's no change. There's no power. That's the question. Now note Jesus' answer. First, there's two parts to it. The first thing he does is he asks for a denarius. Now, we actually know what a denarius looks like. We have hundreds of them in museums around the world. These are pictures of the front and back. The front is a picture of Tiberius Caesar, and it literally says in the, in the Latin there that this is 
uh, Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus. And then on the back is a, he, this would really get him a lot of favor in his family. That's a picture of his mother, Tiberius' mother. But in, again, in the Latin, it says uh, Pontificus Maximus, which is in the masculine. So he, Tiberius is referring to himself as the son of God, Augustus, and the high priest. That's a denarius. That's a day's wages. That's what was required to uh, pay the, the head tax. And so uh, Jesus asked for one of these coins, and he says, whose image is on it? Now, the Jewish audience, hearing the word image, would have gone back to Genesis chapter 1 and realized that Jesus is making quite a subversive, very indirect saying here, about image. Who's not made in the image of Tiberius Caesar? Well, you aren't. And I'm not. What I think Jesus is doing here, again, subversively, is espousing the first political theory of limited government. Up until this time, every human government, and even the Jews would believe this, was they felt divine. It was a deity. You, you could not resist the government. The government was God in your life. And even these coins were, were minted out of the personal wealth of the emperor. These were Tiberius' coins. And so Jesus saying, they're in his image. You, you need to pay it. You need to give it back. It's his. But he's saying, you who are made in God's image... You do not give complete and final and total allegiance to any human government. What Jesus is doing, get this, is putting government in its place. Men and, men and women were not made for government. Government was made for men and women. Whose image is on it? Give it to his. Give the coin to him. But you don't give yourself to him. You are made in someone else's image. God's image. And then... That's the object lesson. From the object lesson, Jesus comes and he makes just a flat-out bold statement in the text. He says, render unto Caesar what's Caesar's and unto God what's God's. What's interesting is how Jesus puts a nuance on the verb render. When the people ask the question back in verse 14, they ask, should we pay the tax? When Jesus answers, he says, you should pay back the tax he puts a prefix on the verb switches it from pay to pay back in other words jesus is saying you should give the emperor what you owe him now again i think jesus is masterful in what he's saying here in, in espousing political theory because what he's saying is well for instance what should you give an, an emperor how do you pay back an emperor who's a tyrant well, you probably give him back his coin. It belongs to him. It's his personal money. But maybe you should also pay him back some resistance, especially when he dishonors the image of God in people. You pay him back. I think when a governor is good, you pay him or her back as well. And you support them not only with your coin, but you support them with you know, being involved in, in, as a good, faithful, honest citizen. Jesus is saying, you pay back the emperor what he is owed. So in the, it's just a masterful answer, right? 
it's, it's, it's interesting to me that at the end of the text, they were amazed at him. Now, we all know when you hear a politician and he's just spinning or she's just fudging and they're asking a question and the answer will cost them something and this, so they don't answer. Makes you mad, right? Really mad. They were amazed at Jesus. Even the ones who were trying to trap him. Why? Because he's just walking this nuanced, this balanced answer. It's interesting to me that whenever Jesus talks about us following him, he's very clear and direct. There's no question what it means to follow Jesus. Pick up your cross and follow me. He demands everything. Total allegiance. We pledge our total life to Jesus. That's very clear. But when it comes to government and politics... Jesus is much more nuanced, much more balanced. In fact, this answer is kind of like a both and. If the government's good, you pay him back. If the government's bad, you pay him back. Very nuanced and balanced. And then Jesus is going to advocate a third way of the kingdom of God to take over the world. And before we get to the irony, I just want to make two quick applications, especially for the the moms and dads and the adults in the room on our politics. First application is this. Think about this. This is where the fireworks might start flying again. That's okay. We'll make the picnic exciting after, okay? Notice, by way of application, that the people just want Jesus to give them a simple, clear, honest answer. Should we pay the tax? And then they reinforce it. Should we or shouldn't we? Like, choose your party. What party are you? What are you going to do? Jesus never gives them a clear, direct answer. It's, it's nuance. It's, again, it's balance. It's both and. It's two paradox held in tension. It's, let me get to the point. There are those of us, and especially as I read your Facebook posts, who really think that Jesus is small enough to fit into one political party. Are you hearing me? And all you're about is making Jesus small enough to fit into your politics. Why are you doing to Jesus what he himself would not do? Jesus is far too big to fit into a human political party and should that not govern the way that we are civil with one another the way that we treat each other with our differing and healthy differing views of politics in this free land hey it's not me it's jesus now i'm not done yet hold on yeah i I lost my train of thought, all right? There's pew, pew. (laughs) Think about this. This is how this, I mean, so you could read the Bible and start in Genesis and there see that one of the first things we're to be about as followers of God is to be caring for our environment it's one of the first commands i give you dominion to take care of the earth and you better do it i'm putting the earth under your care one of the first responsibilities of a christian 
is to be an environmentalist. Now, you could take that biblical call and have voted in the last election for Ralph Nader and had biblical support. Uh Uh-huh. Very quiet in here now. (laughs) African-American would come up and begin to dialogue with the environmentalists and say, wait a minute, wait, have you not read the papers about what's been going on in the black community, how churches are being burned, people shot? I mean, have you, the greatest crisis of our time is racial injustice. And the African-American, with biblical support, could have voted whatever party puts that highest on their platform and been right. And so it goes. You can be a faithful follower of Jesus and end up voting in different parties all in the same body, following Jesus together. Sometimes it's just a matter of what your priorities are, your political priorities, and we figure that out. You know what I'm saying to you? Waterstone. Don't be simplistic in your politics. Don't think that there's just one party that every Christian has to follow to be a, a biblical, to be biblical. And don't think, you know, go around asking, well, how could you vote for him? It's just not that simple. And if Jesus would not choose sides, nor should we. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have political convictions. We vote, we, we research, we do the work, we become citizens, we use the freedoms that we have. Yes, yes. But we do not do that at the expense of mistreating brothers and sisters who may have different political priorities than you. Okay? We'll talk uh, during the picnic. We'll talk. <laughs> the other thing I want to say So not only should we not be simplistic in our politics, at the same time, I think what happens is, especially if you try to, you know, research positions, see who's for what, play out the impacts of decisions that, you know, we want to vote for, you can get overwhelmed. You can get, like, lost. Like, really? It has to be this hard? And what I see some Christians do is just basically say, you know, I'm out. You know, I'm going to be like the Essenes in Jesus' day and go live in the tombs where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm just going to, you know, why should we polish the knobs on the doors of a sinking ship? Let me out, you know. Jesus says to you, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. You can't opt out. You need to pay back our government what you owe them. I mean, and the government does so many good things. I mean, we were just on vacation, our whole family. We drove from Denver, Colorado to the Surekill Express, I mean, the Schoolkill Expressway in southeastern Pennsylvania. That was for Keith Swirly. And um, 2,000 miles of road our government provides. I was just sitting there thinking, thank you, God. This trip used to take like five months. The government does so many good things. You cannot opt out. You need to render unto Caesar. And that's money, that's time, that's being a citizen, that's getting engaged in uh, the government. So those are the applications. Jesus would have us not be simplistic in our politics, but to be civil and compassionate. And He would have us engage. 
I mean, in a sense, be more political than ever because we know who the king is. Let's talk about the third way. Here's the irony. Here's the irony. So what you have on this stage playing out is two claimants. You have Tiberius Caesar, the the guy on the coin, the most powerful man on the planet in Jesus' time. And then on the other side of the stage, you have Jesus. On the one hand, you have Tiberius who owns all the quarters of the world. They're his. Here's the irony. On the other side, you have a man saying, do you have a quarter I could borrow? He did not have a quarter. Do you see the irony? We follow a king without a quarter. And that will be the power that takes down the world. You see, the reason Jesus doesn't have a quarter is because he emptied himself of all his wealth and he went to the cross for you and for me. And he emptied himself of all his power and he went to the cross for you and me. And the reason he did that was to give us all his wealth and to share in all his power. And at the cross, that transference happens. You see, what every political system, what every person in the world wants is power, identity, security, and comfort. And having those things, we can live. And what a Christian realizes as a follower of Christ is that Jesus has given me power, identity. We are a child of God. Jesus became anonymous. Even the Father turned away from Him so that we could become the identity as a child of God. He gave us everything. And here's how it works. Because we have His power, His identity, His security, and and His status, we can lay down our stuff and go and do what Jesus did. Live with the marginal and the outcasts. Live to make a difference among the poor in the world. Live our lives for others. We can do that because we have all those things that Jesus has given us. The acceptance of God, the virtual wealth of heaven now, and the identity as a child of God. In that exchange at the cross, we get what our soul needs. You see, all political structures try to change people from the outside in. And that just doesn't work too well. What Jesus' kingdom does is changes from the inside out. And having a new heart and a new life, we are free to go and serve this world in love. And do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? That means that the greatest painting in all the world that every eye will see, that painting's called the kingdom of God. And do you know what that means? Your face is identifiable in that painting. You are the kingdom builders, the church of God, Jesus Christ. It's your face on the painting that changes this world. So, Waterstone, build the kingdom. We say to Jesus, build your kingdom here. And on this 4th of July weekend, this celebration, we pause and we say, glory, hallelujah, to the King of kings. And we will lay everything down and follow Him. Jesus, build your kingdom here.